Hello, everyone, and welcome to Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in to today's podcast episode. This is a good one because I have finally watched my first F1 race live. So really, I watched the sprint, which is similar, but, you know, it's like a third of the, the length. But it was super fun to watch. If you listened to my last week's episode, you know I was a little bit skeptical about if I would actually like to watch a race live because, you know, in Drive to Survive the show, they're cutting together all the exciting parts and the the passes and the crashes and stuff. And I just thought, okay, maybe I just like it in that format and the actual race would be super boring. But we watched the sprint race. It took about 40 minutes and I was thoroughly entertained the whole time. I think I would find the actual full race totally entertaining. Like, I'm assuming the whole time. So um, I won't be able to watch the full race tomorrow because I'm recording this Saturday night. The actual race is happening tomorrow morning. But my time zone, it happens at like 5 a.m. So I'm not holding out hope that I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. to watch the whole race. But the sprint race happened at 7.30 a.m. this morning, my time. And so it was very exciting to watch. And I do actually have a clarification on the sprint race because as I've been tracking the race weekend, Charles Leclerc, uh, it said in his qualifying he got first place and he said, I got pole position. Now, last week I mentioned that the sprint race determines pole position for Sunday. And, but then it didn't make sense with what Charles was posting because he says, you know, on Friday, he said, I got pole position. I'm starting the weekend pole position on Sunday. And then we watched the sprint race. He got second place and I was expecting them to say, okay, well, you know, the guy who won Perez now has pole position, but they kept saying Charles still had pole, which Again, if you're new to Formula One, pole position means you start in first place on the grid on race day. So I ended up looking this up because it didn't make sense with what I had literally just told everyone on the F1 podcast on the part one. And I realized it was a slightly, a slight change in rules from the 2022. So it said in 2022, qualifying, which is like Friday determined the grid for the F1 sprint and the result of that dash created the grid for Sunday's Grand Prix. So basically the winner of the sprint uh, determined Sunday's Grand Prix order. But for 2023, there's two different qualifying sessions. The first is still on Friday. That That determines the grid for Sunday for the main Grand Prix. So that's why Charles, because he won Sunday gets guaranteed pole position no matter what happens in the sprint on Sunday. They said a second shorter qualifying session will run on Saturday morning, which replaces the second one hour practice session and sets the grid for the sprint. So it was, what I said was true for 2022, but as of 2023, the main race grid and pole position is determined Friday. The sprint race has no bearing on the main event grid. So just wanted to clarify that, wanted to report that I have now watched a race, at least a sprint race, and I do think it's extremely exciting. So those are big, big updates there. And we're going to get into a few 
more uh, things because it was a part two and the other one was getting pretty long. But I wanted to go over like, I know we talked about, you know, how there's 10 teams and two drivers per team, but I wanted to get into some of the other roles in the team. So like the structure of those and go over all the different people involved because the teams are pretty extensive and oftentimes large. So we'll go through those, give a kind of a rundown of some terms, common terms you'll hear at F1. We'll go over the history of F1 and then some of the recent controversies that have happened around, you know, some of the new rules and breaking of those rules and stuff like that. Then I kind of want to just give you like a rundown on my thoughts on some of the the drivers because I really love drivers that some people don't like and I don't like drivers that some people like. Is that what I just said? I don't know. I feel like I have the opposite opinion uh, on a couple drivers and I just want to go over that. So uh, let's get into this Formula One part two podcast episode. I hope you enjoy. thing I want to talk about is the structure of the team because this is something that's kind of highlighted pretty well in the Drive to Survive series although there were some missing pieces that uh, I learned through these articles so this is from us.motorsport.com and I'm going to read some of these snippets and summarize and stuff like that but let's go over the main roles of the team you know besides the drivers because that's kind of obvious Um, but the first big role, the major head honcho is called the the team principal. So this is the lead role in the team. It requires a vast range of personality traits. They say, you know, this is like the guy who's heading up the entire team as a whole. So he communicates with the drivers, but also the engineers. He directs where the funding is going. It says they not only oversee, the operations at the track and the factory. Um, They're heavily involved in the politics of the sport, often leading top level negotiations with the organizers and the FIA. The buck stops here. Um, so he, they're basically like the principal, you know, they're, they're over the whole team. Although it does say that that's not necessarily true because there is usually, there's an owner of the team. So for example, um, you know, you have the team principal, but they're hired by the owner. So there's kind of, you know, an, an additional point of authority above them. But as far as the engineers, technicians, all that, their boss, the overall boss is the team principal. Okay. Then you have the technical director. So it says like the team principal, this role is split between overseeing development at the factory and managing operations at the track And it's kind of hard to give the right balance of time to each. And that's how you guarantee success. You need, you know, you need to kind of direct someone who will direct both in the right capacity. The technical director will oversee the early car development, steer its direction, and is the ultimate decision maker on all the technical aspects. So he's guided 
by leaders from other departments, but really he's making the technical moves um, and ultimate technical decisions regarding the car. Uh, this is often the person's vision who makes or breaks a team and, you know, there's sometimes multi-million dollar salaries, it says. Okay, then you have the traveling team. The sport has become known as the traveling circus because of the number of people who travel to put on the show. So you have the race team, which the, the main people in the race team are, of course, the two drivers. But then there are also like around 75 people that travel to set up, run, repair the car, analyze the performance data, you know, all of that. So you have the head of race engineering, so he's part of the technical side. I guess he or she, although I'm pretty sure they're like all men. Um, there's a sporting director who manages the race side. Then each driver has his own kind of mechanic who's responsible for that car. And so he's like, it's kind of an umbrella or hierarchy, you know, as any sort of team is. So you have like the team principal and then it flows down to each level. So each driver has a top mechanic who's responsible for the car. And then they have a team of mechanics under them that are working on it. And then each mechanic is given a specialist role so they'll have like a role in the, uh, at the pit stop or if a certain car part breaks, they are the specialty, the special person basically assigned to that part of the car. So there's a lot of technicians that travel around. There's also the data analysts and the strategy team that are in the garage that travel to all the races because there's all this data from the track and from the car that's being sent back to the factory and the team members to feed it into simulations to predict race scenarios, but then also to see if something's wrong with the car. Um, and let's see, in this group, there is often the test and reserve driver or another top level driver putting a virtual car through its paces in the simulator. So that preparation is not only limited to the hours of real life sessions. So yeah, so when it's not like race day, they will take race data put it in a simulator, replicate scenarios, and help in that way. So, and we'll talk about Daniel Ricardo, but he is Red Bull's third driver, and so he's doing a lot of that, where he'll be in the simulator instead of just on the track on race day. Then there's the track team. It says, alongside the people involved with the car, there are huge numbers of others getting involved taking down and running the show in the paddock and escorting VIPs through the weekends. So there's like all the teams and guests are getting fed. People need to organize that. There's a marketing team that comes. Uh, the drivers have helpers as well, like um, a mind coach, a manager, an agent. Not all of them travel to every race, but there's that whole team. Then uh, there's another overarching. Well, so that was Oh no, I guess they all do travel. So that's the traveling team. Then you have the factory team, which includes the design office, simulation, manufacturing, test and development, and then the race bay. So um, the, the design office is led by the director of engineering. It's a huge department because they have to 
you know, design and develop the car, which is a huge undertaking. So they have a lot of engineers, uh, you know, that are on each team and depending on the team's budget, that's how many more engineers you have and stuff. So there's that whole, uh, team. They need to work on the aerodynamics, materials, design, quality, all of that. So that's a, that's a major team. Then you have simulation and this is everything in the wind tunnel. So, um, and again, we'll talk about this too. Red Bull, when they broke some rules, they had limited wind tunnel time. So like all these teams take their cars into the wind tunnel. So they, again, don't have to just use real time driving, um, and driving time to race. They can do a lot of stuff in the wind tunnel. And so there's a whole team that dedicates their time in the simulator and tries to replicate real life scenarios so that they know how the car is performing. They know how to better get, you know, get the best performance out of the car. Then there's manufacturing. They are manufacturing parts year round. Um, So some of this is in-house, like some teams have more manufacturing in-house than others, some buy manufactured parts. So this can kind of vary by team, but there's usually a manufacturing team. Uh, Test and development, so there's like dynamic test engineers and operators, materials analysis, modal analysis, you know, any vibration analysis that they need. And then there's a race bay team, which is mechanics that work on the cars away from the track, stripping them down when they return, cleaning them up, replacing all the parts that have passed their life limit and piecing them all back together again. So that is the, um, factory team. And then you have anything non-performance, which is like commercial, the, you know, commercial team, logistics and hospitality, the communications team director and stuff like that. So all of the kind of marketing communications, press, uh, anything surrounding that, there is a whole other team for. So it's very extensive what goes into an actual structure of an F1 team. Very, it's crazy. This is like where I'm saying it's a whole other world that is just, you can be so unaware of if you're not kind of paying attention to the, the F1 world because who knew so many people were involved. It's crazy. Um, okay. Let's go over some slang terms used in formula one. Now that we're kind of familiar with a lot of, you know, the structure and how things work. Uh, I'll just go down the list here. This is from f1chronicle.com, which is a very good web website. If you have any questions on formula one, they, they answer everything in their articles. So um, let's see. Okay. The first one is backmarker. So if you ever, heard, ever hear the term backmarker, it means, uh, trailing drivers are often lapped by the leading drivers. The trailing drivers are referred to as backmarkers, just as we refer to backbenchers in schools and colleges. Uh, blistering or graining means that when the cold surface of the track, well, the cold surface of the track is causing pieces to blow out of the tire surface because the inside of the tire is warmer. And then graining is the opposite where the tires are cold and there's a hot outer surface that causes the rubber, rubber chunks to come off and stick to the tire. So that's what those mean. If you hear any announcers saying that they're blistering or graining tires. 
Bottoming out is when the underside of the car comes in contact with the track. Uh, box. So <laughs> you'll hear this a lot in Formula One if you watch. They say box, 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 like confirm, box, box. It's a reminder to the drivers to come in to the pits and have a pit stop. Dirty air or clean air. Okay, this one's kind of interesting. Dirty air is the turbulent air left in the wake of the preceding car. The car coming in the wake of the leading car will experience drag because of dirty air. So clean air is basically the opposite. It's undisturbed air. If a car is, is first or going on its own, that's called clean air. And then for the for the driver behind it, if they're within kind of a certain range, they will get all the turbulence coming off the first car, and that's dirty air, which creates more drag. DRS. This is a big one. DRS is drag reduction system, and it's only allowed to be used in marked zones on the track. So it says turbulent air behind the leading car can lead to a drag on the car following it closely, reducing the downforce. A flap on the car is then used to reduce the drag and decrease the downforce, or sorry, and increase the downforce, which can help the car in overtaking on a straight. So if a car is within one second of the car in front of it, and you're in a DRS zone, which are already, you know, determined before the race starts, you can use DRS. So the driver will put the flap down and be able to try to speed past the car. And it gives them like 14 miles an hour or something of an increase in speed. So kind of an interesting rule there, but it, it makes it so that they can pass easier, essentially. Uh, let's see. Green track is an almost unused track that the drivers encounter on the first day of practice. Marbles, uh, tiny pieces of rubber that are shredded off the tires while cornering are called marbles. They accumulate off the racing line and driving on them can be dangerous. Oversteer and understeer is when a car is turning and the rear wheels of the car lose grip. Um, if the back uh, tires lose grip, that's oversteered. If the front wheels lose grip, it's understeered because it's a shallower turn. A pole sitter is just the driver who sits on pole, which means they got first in qualifying sessions. And a tank slapper is when, you know, the car moves sideways a ton, like the rear of the car swings out and that's called a tank slapper. So those are some of the <laughs> slang terms. So if you ever hear the announcers say any of those, you'll know what it means. Okay, now that we know, you know, the race structure and the weekend structure and the structure of a team and how Formula One works, let's go over the history of Formula One. So the modern era of Formula One began in 1950, but there was motor racing and motorsport racing definitely before the uh, 1950. There were road races in France starting in the 1890s and... Uh, there was a German domination of the 1930s uh, in motor racing. So F1 did not just start out, kind of out of nowhere in the 50s. There was a, a history of motor racing already beginning. But the first use of the word or the term Grand Prix occurred in 1901 at 
the French Grand Prix at Le Mans. So that was the first use of the term that we now use for every Sunday race. In 1904, the FIA, which is, you know, the nonprofit association established to represent the interests of motoring organizations and motor car users, that was established in 1904. And then, you know, kind of a big gap here, fast forward 29 years. In 1933, you know, when racing had been more established, the starting positions on the grid were decided by qualifying times for the first time in Monaco. So they did not have this system of the grid and choosing the position, the starting positions that way before, but that started in 1933. Between 1935 and 1939, there were a number of meetings held, it says, with a view to establish, with a view to establishing a world driver's championship. Um, although that was kind of put off uh, and and paused on once World War II started. Uh, formula One was established and agreed as a recognized, quote, formula in 1946. 1947, the World Drivers' Championship was formalized. So uh, it says that it was to take three more years before the first championship race, although there were races under F1 regulations from this year. So it took a little while for the process of the World Drivers' Championship to be established and um, actually put into place, but the rules were, were put in place in 1947. Then in 1950 was the actual launch of the Drivers' World Championship. The first race was at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone on May 13th. There were 22 non-championship races that year and only six counted towards the title. It says the first official F1 race, a non-championship event at POW, was held the previous month. Okay, this is where we first, because we have now Formula One established, Drivers' Championship established, this is where the timeline kind of gets more packed. So in 1952, the Drivers' Championship was run to Formula Two regulations because of concerns about the number of F1 cars available that continued throughout the 1953 season. So kind of a weird couple years in Formula One. Argentina hosted the first grand champion or sorry, the first championship Grand Prix outside of Europe in 1953. So this is kind of where the traveling started. And now, of course, it's all over the world that they're traveling this weekend that we just watched. They're in uh, Baku or Baku, Azerbaijan, also like the Middle East. They have one in Miami and Vegas in Monaco. So like they have them all over now, but that's where the traveling kind of started. Uh, 1954, there are new F1 regulations that limit engines to two and a half liters, resulting in the world championship being reinstated under F1 regulations. The first constructors championship, which again is like the team award, the team championship, um, and the first Grand Prix in Africa was held in Morocco in 1958. 1958 also, they said the practice of sharing cars during a race was banned, which is very interesting. So I guess before 1958, they would, like drivers would change cars or share cars during a race, which seems crazy now because, I don't know, that just seems crazy. Okay, 1958... 
Sterling Moss won the first race in a rear-engined F1 car. Within two years, all cars uh, featured this design. 1961, the 1.5-liter engine formula began. So new regulations said 1.5 liters instead of, uh, what did I just say was 2.5 liters. So it changed to 1.5 liter. Then it changed again in 1966 to a three-liter engine formula. So there's a lot of these just kind of interesting rule changes. The German Grand Prix was the first to be televised in color in 1967. Let's see. The pace car was used for the first time in 1973. The first Grand Prix in Asia was held in Japan in 1976. Uh, there was also a six-wheeled car introduced in 1976, which obviously didn't um, catch on. So that's kind of interesting. Like, they have stuck with four wheels from then on, so it must not have been that great. Uh, Renault in 1977 produced the first turbocharged car, which now they're not allowed to be turbocharged. They were banned in 1989, but that's when that rolled out um there was a formation of the federation internationale du sport automobile or the fisa fisa was the governing body for events that was formed in 1979 uh you know a lot of these are like teams unveiling new suspension and whatever I'm not super interested in that, but I will also link this timeline just in case you want to learn more. The last non-championship F1's race was staged in 1983. Oh, 1984 with the turbocharged cars. This was before it was banned. The Austrian Grand Prix was the first Grand Prix to feature only turbocharged cars. So like five years later, they were banned. But for that, every single car on the grid was turbocharged, which is interesting. 1985, the first World Championship Grand Prix was held in Australia. Uh, there's a safety car at the British Grand Prix that got implemented in 1992. This is more of a, you know, kind of technical history. There's also... Another article that I thought was kind of interesting that I found with less of a timeline, but more of just like paragraphs walking through um, the history. And it says more of the information as to like, I don't know, some of the interesting tidbits. So I'm just going to skim through that and say, you know, some of the interesting things here. But one of them that I thought was <laughs> was funny is that way back, like in 1899, the one of the most successful drivers ever let's see his name is it says regarded as the first motor regarded as the first motor race proper was a 1200 kilometer road race from paris to bordeaux and back in 19 or in 1895 won by emile levasseur um in 48 hours one of the most successful drivers of the early year was fernand charon sharon Sharon, I don't know, who won the Paris-Bordeaux race in 1899, also in a panhard, at the blazing average speed of 29.9 miles an hour. 
So we talked about last time that these cars now can get up to 235 miles an hour. When we were watching today on the straightaways, they were getting to like 200 miles an hour. The first race (laughs) that won was not even going 30. So that just puts into perspective how far we have come. Let's see some of the other ones. Uh, There's a first Grand Prix victory by an American-built car. was won by Jimmy Murphy in the 1921 French Grand Prix. This is also kind of like into the technical weeds a little bit. You know, how many liters each car had, speeds at what years. So I'll link this article, but I just wanted to hit the major points of F1. Basically, motorsports were happening since, you know, 1895. The speeds have increased. The technology has obviously increased. Formula One was kind of organized in the 50s. And then everything past then, you know, we they've developed the Drivers' Championship over time and the um, Constructors' Championship. And so now that kind of developed into what it is today. So the rules are always still changing. Like we just said, you know, the 2022 sprint format is different than the 2023 and the sprint format wasn't even introduced you know before 2021 so it's kind of an ever-changing sport here but um that is like the basic bare bones history of formula one so um okay the next thing that i wanted to talk about a little bit is like current events or like drama and this isn't even really that current. Well, it's kind of current. This article was written October 28th of 2022. And we were talking about, uh, you know, a little bit ago that, or last episode, that there are new rules about spending caps on the teams. So you can only spend $145 million on your car you know, each team and it's in an effort to make everything a little bit more even because some teams just spend like triple other teams or many times what other teams spend. And so they put a spending cap of 145 million. Now this doesn't include everything. It doesn't include drivers and I think it doesn't include catering or, uh, you know, there's, it's for a certain category like chassis design and stuff like that. But there was a big controversy where Red Bull won the Constructors' Championship, but then they were accused of overspending um, and breaking the $145 million cap. So, you know, it was under investigation by the FIA. It turned out they did overspend, and the penalty was that they needed to pay a $7 million fine and forfeit wind tunnel time as a punishment for overspending. So they overspent by $1.8 million and it said they found 13 discrepancies in an audit of the over 75,000 line items on Red Bull's 2021 financial report. So it was 13 lines. They overspent by $1.8 million and they got fined $7 million and wind tunnel time, which is kind of interesting because we talked about the wind tunnel And it is a very, very valuable thing to have a wind tunnel 
to be in the simulator and they still get time, but they need to track all their time and they get less than all the other teams because they won the championship and it wasn't discovered until later that they had overspent. So this was like a retroactive penalty for their overspending. However, the team principal, Christian Horner, was adamant that their overspending and their areas of overspend had zero benefit on the performance of the team. He thought that the, you know, the penalties were unfair um, and thinks that Red Bull was targeted because they were so successful and because they won by such big margins and all of this that they just wanted to um, get penalized. They wanted to penalize Red Bull. So that's his theory, although like every team, I feel like complains about every penalty that's handed down, even if it's deserved, but whatever. But Christian Horner maintained that not one penalty, not one penny was spent on extra performance. Uh, it's payable within 30 days. And the penalty, the wind tunnel penalty was 10% of time. So he basically said, this is going to be a huge detriment to us although this was for the 2022 season they did great in the 2022 season and then they're like destroying in the 2023 season so I don't think it really had an effect they still have way by far the best car and so it, it didn't end up mattering that much uh, the FIA also fined Aston Martin $450,000 for a procedural violation in its expenditure submission uh, they, like, excluded or adjusted some costs, um, but their penalty was much less. They didn't, um, it wasn't as big of a deal, basically. The FIA noted that neither team acted in bad faith, dishonesty, or fraudulent manner, but this was a big thing when it blew up in F1, and it shows it on Drive to Survive that people were calling them cheaters, and saying that they were shady, and all that, so the FIA did come out and clarify that, like, this was not in bad faith, but they still did uh, penalize Red Bull. So that was like the major controversy that I was kind of following a little bit and that they showed in Drive to Survive that I wanted to touch on because things like that definitely happen sometimes, but it's pretty rare. So that was like a big thing for the F1 community. And this is why I say it's kind of like a reality show because um, like there's just some drama sometimes, which is, is kind of fun. Um, okay, let's just end this podcast with just some of my random thoughts about some of the teams and some of the drivers. So, if you know Daniel Ricciardo, well, first of all, just go watch Drive to Survive. But, you know, that goes without saying. If you have watched Drive to Survive, this is where I'm getting most of this information. Um, but let's talk about some of the drivers. My favorite driver is Carlos Sainz. He is awesome. He now drives for Ferrari. I also love Charles Leclerc, who's the other Ferrari driver. But Carlos Sainz just has some sort of charm to him. He is... He's not Italian. I think he's Spanish. I think. Yeah, he's Spanish. He is, like, the best. He has his uncle, who's also named Carlos, who kind of coaches him and stuff. He just kind of reminds me of Nadal... Uh, in tennis, and I love that he drives for Ferrari. Ferrari is my favorite team by far, just because, I think because of Cars, um, you know, the, the Pixar movie, because 
they're like, oh, Ferrari in cars. And I just, I don't know. I just have like this nostalgic feeling surrounding Ferrari that I can't exactly explain. But I just also love that the two drivers that drive for Ferrari, these young, attractive, charming guys, and they're just good drivers as well. And yeah, I just love them. So Carlos Sainz is my favorite. Now, Daniel Ricciardo, let's talk about him. Because everyone loves Daniel Ricciardo, and I can't really stand him. Well, okay, that's a little harsh. I can stand him. But, and I think there's good qualities about him, because he's really nice to his pit crew if things go wrong with his car. And, you know, some of these people are kind of spoiled brats in their car, and they're yelling at the engineers, and they're, like, very hot on the mic, talking back to their teams, and I don't like that. And Daniel does not do that. And I listened to an interview recently with him um, on Dax Shepard's F1 podcast. And he was like, yeah, I, I kind of did that once where I like snapped at the engineering team and it just didn't feel good. So he's, he's just matured and grown and it's good. Now, when I say he's matured and grown, I think that's like the only aspect where he's like super mature. Everyone loves him because he's like so silly and goofy, but it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Like not to squelch the happiness, not to be a hater, but, like, some of his jokes, I'm like, oh, gosh, why? And you'll kind of understand if you watch Drive to Survive. I just don't love that. I also think he's, like, really overrated. He screwed over Renault. So he went from Red Bull to Renault. They signed him with the idea that it would be, like, a long-term thing, that he would build up the team. He was doing really good on Renault. And then he left after two years and kind of screwed them over and went back to I think that he went to McLaren didn't do well on McLaren and then now he's the third place driver for Red Bull and the worst part is he's not even driving this year like he's not on the grid obviously because he's third there's only two drivers per team so he's the third place driver everyone still is like oh he's just amazing he's so good like, okay, well, not really if he's not even on a team. Okay. And then um, he's still getting paid. The He's getting paid the, more this year than he ever has in Formula One because McLaren basically broke his contract, still has to pay him out for the rest of the contract, and then he's getting paid as a backup driver for Red Bull. So it cost McLaren so much money to break ties with him because he was not that great at driving anymore. It also had to do with the car. So it wasn't just all his driving. The McLaren car was not that good, but still like everyone is saying he's such an amazing driver and he's probably like a really nice guy. And again, don't want to be a hater, but I'm like, I don't get what the hype is. He's like the most popular driver in formula one and he's not even racing. Anyway, Carlos Sainz, I think, is the most underrated. I love him. And Daniel Ricciardo is so is is overrated. I'm sorry to say it. Um, let's see, who else do I like? I really liked Lewis Hamilton and how he was portrayed for the majority of Drive to Survive, because he seemed just like very nice and level-headed and stuff. But then when I was listening to other podcasts, they're saying that he's always complaining on his radio and always like moaning and groaning about something especially when he was winning. So I haven't seen that, but I guess like, I think that portrayal might, may have been different on drive to survive than what people see like in live races. Um, Oh, 
the other one I want to talk about, Fernando Alonso. Everyone loves him too. And I don't know. I just think he, he was kind of portrayed as like a little bit of a jerk on Drive to Survive. Although I think at like a sport like this and being at that level where there's only 20 people in your sport that are actively racing, you kind of have to be a jerk a little bit, which is what I'm realizing. Um, and then of course, Max Verstappen, who is like the highest paid, he's a Red Bull racer. He's way out ahead in the points. He's just destroying everyone. First of all, their car is the best. And then he's like the best driver. He is definitely a jerk, but again, it takes that to win. I think to be that good, like there is no one even out there touching him really. Maybe in a couple one-off races, but he got third today in the sprint race with a big hole in the side of his car because someone ran into him, kept racing, so there was, like, so much drag going into his car, and he still got third. So, he's just, like, the best driver out there. He's Dutch, I believe, and he's... Or is he Dutch? Uh, hold on. Let me just do a quick back check. Oh, he's Belgian. Oh, wait, which is Dutch? Belgian and Dutch. Oh, he's a Dutch-Belgian racer. Interesting. He competes under the Dutch flag. Um, so, yeah. So, he is definitely a jerk. He is, you know, the guy who hit him today came up and apologized to him. And then the announcer said, hey, did, so did you get it sorted with George Russell who hit you? And he goes, no, it was not clarified. Like, he shouldn't, he should have given me more room. And you can tell, like, in Drive to Survive, Max is the kind of guy who doesn't give other people room either. So, you know, but again, he's he's the top Formula One driver in the entire world. You don't get there by being, like, soft and uncompetitive and, you know, a pushover. So, anyway, those are my thoughts on some of the drivers. Might be hot takes, may not be. Um, but anyway, so that is all I have for Formula One. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you are a Formula One fan and I got any of this wrong, <laughs> let me know. Uh, DM me on Instagram at Millennial Learns because, uh, you know, I could have some things in here like, oh, I didn't know that was a 2022 rule versus a 2023. These rules are changing all the time. I feel like penalties are sometimes made up. These new rules are kind of like out of thin air sometimes. You're like, oh, wait, you can't do that. Here's a fine. And it's like a very vague rule. So anyway, I appreciate all of the the help and correction if any of this is, you know, slightly off. I think I think all these articles are up to date and, and ready to rock and roll. So uh, thank you all so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed. And we are back next week with another state history episode. So I will see you then. Bye, everyone.